Ready? I think we're going to start this, John, and uh, we'll and we'll see how it goes. That was loud. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, <laughs> that's a lot more clanging that you're supposed to have on that gong. I know. I, I know. It's very clanging. Uh, good morning, everybody. Good morning, friends. It's Wednesday, um, the 25th of March. There's a special virtual City Club forum in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. Helpfully, I brought the uh, backdrop and the gong with me here. I'm Dan Maltrip, Chief Executive at the City Club and also a proud member. And today we're talking about policy responses to the pandemic. Uh, we're going to mostly focus on state policy, but because our guest is deeply knowledgeable, we're probably gonna to be touching on federal and local policy as well. Our guest, by the way, is John Corlett. He's the, wearing a baseball hat there. He's the CEO and, uh, or President and Executive Director of the Center for Community Solutions, which has been serving our community as a solutions-focused think tank for more than a century. John has been a leader in the health and human services field for his entire career. Before this role, he was running government relations for Metro Health Medical Center. Before that, he was Ohio's Medicaid director, and he has spoken at the City Club a number of times in various roles. John Corlett of the Center for Community Solutions, welcome back to the City Club of Cleveland. It's great to see you. And glad to be here and uh, part of this sort of uh, using my phone and the speaker. So, anyways, <laughs> all works. You know, I think uh, that's probably the story of this. Uh, uh, crisis that we're in is ingenuity and uh, trying to do as best we can with what we have. So I appreciate the opportunity to be here this morning. There's a lot to talk about, a lot going on, and a lot more that needs to go on. Indeed. Um, John, just before we get started, I wanted to note that these virtual forums are made possible by some great donors. We've got Everstream, Sisters of Charity Foundation, the Western Reserve Area Agency on Aging, City Club board members Mark Ross, Paul Harris, and Robin Minter Smyers, among many others. Um, canceling in-person forums, to be perfectly honest with everybody who's watching right now, uh, canceling the in-person forums for the pandemic has meant the loss of tens of thousands of dollars for our operations at the City Club. And it's just like every restaurant you know and, and many other businesses as well. So their support and your support helps us to continue to provide you with conversations of consequence now and on the other side of this crisis. And we thank you very much. So now to the conversation, John Corlett, it seems to me there are a few ways we can think about this. Um, there's the kind of public health policy and economic policy. And then you've got different levels. You've got sort of federal, state, and local. And then there's what's happening now and what we wanna, and what's happen, going to happen in the future. And then hypothetically, what you might like to see happen as well. Um, so that's kind of where I think we ought to start. Um, okay. Particularly with public health, let me just say too, though, to everybody who's listening and watching, if you have a question, you can add them to the chat uh, function in the Zoom, or you, if you're watching on the YouTube stream, you can also text questions to 330-541-5794, 330-541-5794, or tweet them at the City Club and we'll work it into the program here. John, let's start with, and, and I, I actually realized I should, I should write up, up here, like, there it is. Oh, I don't know if that's, that's helpful because it turns backwards. But anyway, John, let's start with public health um, and the and sort of federal, state, local policy. How are you? How are you seeing what's happening? And do you see that it's having making a difference? I think Dan, that um, I see them as linked together. That you know, the economy isn't going to improve until we sort of address the public health challenge that is right in front of us. And I think. You know, we saw how they're linked, you know, last night here in Cleveland, yesterday afternoon here in Cleveland, you know, the Cleveland Food Bank uh, did another uh, food distribution uh, yesterday. And, you know, traffic was backed up for miles on the highway. They, uh, it was just their second sort of drive through food giveaway uh, in two weeks. And they served, they had 1500 cars come through uh, over the course of several hours, about 4000 people. And, and one of the things that I thought was sort of stunning about it and showing how quickly this public health crisis has sort of morphed into an economic crisis was two-thirds of those families were new. They had never turned to the food bank before. In fact, probably some of them were food bank donors uh, who are now, you know, in need of those services. And so, you know, God bless the food bank for being there and, and providing that. But it just shows how quickly uh, this, uh, this situation has developed. You know, I think... I think one of the things that's important here that we, we shouldn't forget is kind of the context uh, that we're operating in. You know, the U.S. is one of only three uh, industrialized countries that doesn't offer, um, you know, paid sick leave. 
Uh, and so it doesn't ensure, we don't ensure that every worker has access to paid time off when they're sick. Um, and you know, our counter cyclical spending, which is a really nerdy uh, term, uh, what does that mean? like SNAP benefits and Medicaid, they just uh -huh. aren't as robust as other countries. And so it makes it more difficult uh, for people to sort of do the kind of things we're asking them to do to shelter in place because many of them have to work in order to keep a roof over their heads, keep food in their refrigerator and gas in their car. So, and I know, you know, one of the things we talked about yesterday, Dan, was, you know, some people, and just to kind of show the difference, kind of the stark differences in how different countries are kind of addressing this and viewing this, you know, uh, some people had pointed recently at Denmark, you know, as a country that sort of set, you know, a different path. Now, mm -hmm. you know, I always think about some of these times, some of these comparisons, I'm not sure how, we're so different, I'm not sure how valid they are, but just to give you a sense, you know, in, in less than 24 hours, you know, all of their various political parties reached agreement that if employers would keep people employed during this crisis, that they, the government would cover 75% of employee salaries and 90% of the salaries of people who were hourly workers. It, it's hard to imagine our government sort of reaching that kind of conclusion. Um, but, I, you know, I think one of the things that we learned uh, from the Great Recession, you know, several years back, and I always tell people, yeah, I was Medicaid director for two years. My first month on the job was the month the Great Recession started, and my last month on the job was when it officially ended. Um, but one of the things we learned from that uh, experience was when, you know, there was a, a stimulus bill then uh, around that issue, around that crisis, around the Great Recession. It was too small. It, it did. Mm -hmm. It offered. It helped, but it didn't help enough. And I think, you know, when we think about the response, how are you feeling? How are you feeling, John, about the really um, unprecedented and an extraordinary circumstance? We have to think very big, John. Um, John, how are you feeling? Can you hear me? <laughs> okay. How are you feeling about the um, the size, the two trillion dollar size of the federal response? You said that the that it wasn't the recession, the response in the recession, one of the lessons learned was that it wasn't enough. How do you feel about what you've seen in the news this morning? Well, yeah, we've, we, I think uh, the folks in DC, the policy wonks in DC kind of, uh, sort of refer to this now as Corona 3, because it's really the third bill that we've done. I mean, the first two were really just sort of, you know, they weren't particularly serious. They had important components in them, but mm -hmm. they didn't do enough. But this bill really has a, a quite a breadth of, of uh, things in it touches on a lot of different areas of the economy around healthcare, around education, around housing. So mm -hmm. it, it really goes wide and I think it goes pretty, very deep. It's about, it's $2 trillion. So just to remember, I think Corona two, uh, you know, or the first Corona bill was like $8 billion. So mm -hmm. we have magnified, uh, you know, probably more, I don't even know how much we've magnified it, but it's a lot more spending in this bill. And you know, the truth is now, I mean, this is the time when you, this is what you deficit spend for, uh, mm -hmm. is for these certain circumstances. Because if we do that, we can uh, bring this economy back sooner than we might if we didn't do it. I mean, there's things in it like, you know, the, you know getting money out to people, you know, $1,200 to nearly all adults, uh, uh, $500 to most kids, you know, it, it phases out over higher income levels as it probably should. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, that's important. Um, loan funds for small businesses, um, expanding unemployment insurance, you know, adding on a federal benefit onto the state benefit, $600 mm -hmm. a month, extending that for four months. So I, d I do think it's a good start. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, uh, but I, as I understand it, even though the Senate and House have yet to pass it, although we understand they've agreed on it, mm -hmm. uh, the planning is already underway for Corona 4, uh, the next uh, stimulus bill. And so there's going to be more of this because one of the things that we're going to learn as we go through this is it's hard to anticipate everything, the problems that are going to sort of, that are going to come to our attention that we're not aware of. Like one of the things I heard about yesterday uh, particularly for folks who have these subsidized phones and things like that, that we need to add more minutes to their phones. We need to pay, you know, to give people more coverage. Um, one of the things we talk about in the Medicaid space, for example, is, you know, one of the things we should allow is for people to get their medications delivered so they don't have to go to the pharmacy to pick them up and maybe give them a longer supply mm -hmm. so that they're not filling prescriptions as often. So a lot of these things are going to continue to unfold and we're going to think of new um, ideas as well. John, I wanted to when I wanted to go back to this uh, Corona three part, 
and right. ask you specifically about um, the expansion and the kind of uh, of in unemployment insurance that has right. that's a piece of this. I know that um, that the one in either Corona one or Corona two, they waived uh, they waived a lot of the requirements, the one week requirement. They're trying to get people through the process to receiving benefits as quickly as possible. And last I understood, it was up to 20 weeks of benefits at 50% of pay. This new, if we get pretty specific, because I think this is really on a lot of people's minds, small businesses mm -hmm. who are weighing whether to lay people off, employees who are wondering whether they're going to be laid off. Right. Um, what's the, this Corona 3 bailout, however we're, this Corona 3 financial assistance package, let's call it that, that sounds better than bailout. Um, what does it offer and what are we likely to see and along with that, I remember during the 2008 crisis that unemployment benefits were extended and extended and extended several times through the process so that by the end, I think people were getting almost a year and a half worth right. of coverage. I mean, I think that's likely to happen now. And I think those, some of those extensions will probably get addressed in future legislation, particularly when we see how long this lasts. You know, I mean, I, I don't think it's clear to anybody yet. I mean, I think everybody, believes that I think health folks believe, professionals believe, you know, that we haven't peaked yet, you know, in terms of this virus. And so I think a lot will depend on what we see on the public health side. But I would I would definitely expect Congress would act to extend these benefits as they have done in the past. But I think this is an important first signal. And it's what's different about uh, this time. I, I don't know if this was done during the Great Recession, but this adding on of a federal benefit on top of your state benefit. Um, I think the bigger challenge, Dan, is going to be for our state to just process these claims. I mean, they are, fr quite frankly, overwhelmed and probably having to deal with less staff than they might normally have because, you know, right. because of the distancing and people getting sick and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to be challenged. So I think, you know, and I think that's with a lot of this bill is now real action is going to turn to the state and local level because they have to implement this. I mean, the federal government's providing really badly needed resources, but the state and local government have to make it work. Yeah, um, I wanted to. I want to quickly just say uh, say to I, we reached our hundred people, hundred person limit on Zoom. Oh so wow! Thank you all for being there. And now we're also streaming live on YouTube and on our website. So I want to welcome everybody who's watching. If you're if you're watching on our website on our live stream, and if you want to tweet or text a question, rather here's <laughs> the number. Let me see if I got it there. Yeah, three three zero five four one five seven nine four three three zero five four one. 5794 if you want to text a question and if you're a Twitter person just tweet it at the City Club and the team is feeding me questions uh, through the chat function on here so um, please you know engage and we'll get to your questions very very soon. John the, um, uh, the state response on the public health side of things the state is sort of somewhat limited in it's a better position to do a public health response than the economic response um, in in some ways and then the, um, uh, but the state, our, our governor and Dr. Amy Acton and others in the cabinet have received a lot of praise from across the country. Um, and from what I can see from just about everybody in Ohio, except for the, uh, the sort of Tea Party wing of the Republican Party, um, is, that, is that how you're seeing it as well? And is that praise deserved? I think so. I mean, I think, I mean, I think the governor and, and Director Acton you know, deserve a lot of credit. I think, you know, what's been really important about their response from the very beginning is I think they've been very clear and also very calm. You know, uh, this is not a time, uh, you, you want to just deliver a clear factual message to people about why it's important that we're doing things. And, you know, one of the things, you know, early on in this, you know, one of the things I said to people is, you know, it takes, it's going to take some people a while longer to sort of take all this in and, and understand what's happening and why they need to make these changes. And I think, you know, they sort of took us along a, a path, you know, where they sort of did a certain number of things each day, kind of stepped it up a little bit. And I think that was probably a good approach because I think if they had come in at the beginning and said, we're doing all these things and they're going into effect at 11 o'clock tonight, I'm not sure how the public would have reacted. So we've got to, we've kind of got to balance the public health with kind of what the public is is willing to accept. And I think they've done a nice job of sort of leading us along the way and providing really clear information. So it sounds like what you're saying is that public health is as much about public communication as it is about public policy. Oh, absolutely. It's it's communication and persuasion. 
and persuasion. Um, well, it's, it's been really interesting. The, the Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com have had some compar comparisons uh, showing the sort of rate of infection and, and mortality rates comparing Ohio to Michigan and also sort of tracking the ways in which those public health responses and policies were communicated and implemented. And it does seem as though our governor and his colleagues have made um, really different decisions, have led in ways where you see other states following them a few days later. And, um, and we seem to be benefiting from that. But the funny thing about public health is that you never know what you've avoided, right? Right. Right. I think you're right, Dan. I mean, I think I think it's I think at least at this point, I think it's really difficult to make comparisons uh, between states because our our data is very incomplete still. Even here in Ohio, it's incomplete. You know, for example, mm -hmm. we don't know how many negative tests have been done. Mm -hmm. You know, and and so I think you know I think we should stay focused on what we're doing. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, stay focused on the social distancing. You know, stay focused on you know contacting your healthcare provider if you have questions. Uh, you know, stay focused on, you know, being aware of what your symptoms might be and, and isolating yourself if you have to. I think, I think that's probably where we should stay focused. And, you know, we can, I think probably best to leave the comparisons, you know, for maybe when we're on the other side of this and we see how we did. That's probably wise. I'm looking for good news everywhere I can possibly find it these days. You know, it's hard to, um, you know, I'm just constantly sort of looking for some sort of bright spots on the horizon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think we're all looking for bright spots. And I think we see those. I mean, you know, I, I should have started by just thanking, you know, all the people who work in the health and human services field who are out there today delivering services to people. I mean, you know, they are really extraordinary and many of them putting themselves at risk on our behalf and the people who deliver stuff to us and everybody who's sort of still out there making sure that everything keeps working. I mean, th there are a lot of heroes uh, yeah. that we'll need to recognize uh, when we're even we recognize them today, but we definitely uh, recognize them tomorrow. I, I think I want to do organize maybe a uh, maybe once at the different hospitals. Once we're done on this, we should organize community clap-ins uh, where we line yeah. the street and clap for them for everything that they're doing to keep us safe during this extraordinary time. John, that is such a good idea. That is such a good idea. Absolutely, as long as we can do it with appropriate social distancing. Yes, um, yes, yes. <laughs> if not, if needed, hopefully right. it won't be needed. Hands across time. America. Right. <laughs> Gloved hands across mm -hmm. America. John, uh, this is a question from City Club member Bashara Addison asking, what supports are in place for, um, for people who are not covered by, traditionally covered by unemployment insurance, specifically gig workers and, um, and others or those who don't work enough hours to qualify, the chronically unemployed? And also, what are we doing about the digital divide? A number of companies have stepped up to offer free Wi-Fi packages, but right. that only helps, of course, if you have a computer or smartphone. And right. working remotely only benefits and is possible for those that are already in a position of privilege. Yeah, that's a good question, and you know, it's an important one because that's one of the things that diff that's different. You know, that gig economy has grown every lar ever larger. You know, over the last several years, particularly since the Great Recession, I I, I think you know one of the ways that they're hoping to uh, connect with those folks. One is through these cash payments that they're going to provide to people directly. And so that should help. And I assume that they're eligible for that. I mean, I haven't seen, none of us have seen the bill yet. You know, we've sort of seen the summaries that people put out, but, you know, knowing, you know, kind of what some of the issues that were going around yesterday, I think, you know, they were making a serious effort to try and address that group to make sure that we get help to them. Because, you know, as I said at the beginning, this, our response has to be as big as the challenge we face and we can't leave people out. We, you know, it, it just, it, it won't help us in the long haul. It, it's, it's bad for public health. It doesn't help us flatten the curve and it doesn't help us get out of this mess sooner, the economic mess that we're in now. So I, I'm hopeful that that, that group will get addressed, get, did get addressed in this most recent bill. John, were you, it, it's hard to remember kind of what our mental state was two weeks ago, um, but were you, uh, were you as surprised as everybody else with the, the speed with which things shifted from this being kind of a problem that's on the horizon that might have an impact on the economy to um, a problem that is right in front of us and is shutting the economy down and we don't know where the end will be? I don't know that, I, I don't think I was surprised. I mean, you know, uh, I, I think I sent a note out to my colleagues at the beginning of March saying, 
we need to plan for working remotely. We need to, you know, this, this is coming our way um, and we need to be ready and think about how we can still function, you know, when we work remotely. I'm not sure everybody agreed with me, but I just wanted to make sure that we were kind of set. So I'm, I'm not surprised. I mean, this is, I mean, this is how viruses travel and uh, they don't respect borders. They don't respect state lines. You know, they don't res respect front doors <laughs> or walls. Um, they, 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 they touch all of us. And so, no, I, I'm, I'm not surprised. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I'm, I wish I was surprised actually, because I wish that we didn't have this. And I wish I was wrong. Mm -hmm. um, another question came in uh, via our text number. And I'll just remind, remind folks again that the, um, the text number is 330-541-5794 uh, if you want to text a question. Um, what's the status of Medicaid disenrollment in Ohio? And do you know how and when the feds plan to distribute stimulus payments by tax returns or just checks in the mail? What's it, what, what do you know? Well, on the Medicaid question, so one of the provisions of coronavirus bill number two uh, was that if state accepted in increased payments from the federal government for Medicaid and Ohio did. And it was, I think it was to Ohio, it was a little over $1 billion in additional funding that they've already started to receive. Um, one of the requirements was that they could not um, terminate anybody's Medicaid coverage uh, during this period of time. So as long as this sort of emergency is in place, um, there is, the state is not allowed to discontinue anybody's Medicaid coverage. I think, you know, the bigger question is how do we get set up to handle this influx that is most almost certainly coming our way because of people losing their jobs and being newly eligible. And I think that's where we're trying to direct the state and our local, you know, agencies to be focused on is let's open the door, make sure that people can get in who are qualified uh, and go from there. I, you know, the details about how, Actually, how these funds are going to flow to um, states, I'm not sure that I know that yet. Uh, I mean, to individuals, uh, there was talk about doing it through the tax system. You know, we've done it that way before, but that doesn't necessarily reach everybody. Um, so I, you know, there've been various methods uh, uh, tossed about, but I don't know that I've heard specifics yet and how it's going to, um, how it's going to go out. And we'll probably see more about that once the bill gets released, uh, hopefully later today. John, you mentioned something earlier about um, how when you were talking about the food bank and you said that, you know, some donors to the food bank are now in line trying to receive some food bank uh, benefits or food bank, you know, um, right. bank support. And you and I were talking yesterday about the way in which this, um, this particular crisis has affected people who never anticipated they would be in need of entitlements or charity. Um, to that end, I'm sure there are some people who are tuning in right now who actually want to know, how do you know if you're eligible for Medicaid? What does that look like? What are the eligibility requirements? If I lose my job tomorrow, can I, and, and my health insurance, do I qualify? Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> there's nothing simple about Medicaid eligibility. Um, uh, but generally, uh, for um, adults, uh, you know, uh, and parent, you know, adult single adults or parents, you know, those without kids or with kids, are usually eligible for Medicaid up to about 138% of the federal poverty level. Uh, kids are eligible up to 200%. Yeah, you know, then there's coverage. What, what is the federal poverty level? What's that? What's the federal poverty level? So for you know, it varies based on the size of your family. Uh, so maybe for two people. You know, for a hundred, you know, for, that is probably around you know fifteen or sixteen thousand dollars a year. So it's not particularly high. One of the things we've suggested, and one of the things the state could do is, is I think we should look at raising the eligibility level of Medicaid up to two hundred percent of poverty while we're in the middle of this during this crisis, um, because I, I think there are folks. You know, I, I sort of refer to them maybe now. They're kind of the new poor or the situational poor. You know, they're not folks who typically, as you said, kind of been in that category before. So I think we've got to adapt uh, to make sure that those people are get the assistance they need. I, I think we should do the same thing, you know, with the SNAP program, the, what we call known as the food stamp program. I think we should raise eligibility there as well to 200%. I think we should increase the benefit level in SNAP. And that's part of what I think is in this most recent uh, corona uh, stimulus bill is increasing that SNAP benefit. Uh, for individuals and families. Um, so yeah, I think, and you know, I'll, I also will sort of direct people, if you go to um, communitysolutions.com, under our blog post, we've got a lot of stuff about how to sort of 
reach out and get benefits, how to apply, you can do that online. Uh, and that's the simplest way to do it. Um, one of the things we're also trying to do, I think one of, one of the things that would be helpful to do during this time, and the state has started to move in this direction, is, is let's cut out all the red tape. We don't need to have people running around collecting pay stubs and rent vouchers or whatever it is. It, let's, if, you, know, you have to fill out an application. If you fill out an application, you're attesting that's true. Let's just take that at people's word because if we spend a lot of time and all this sort of red tape bureaucratic stuff, people aren't going to get the help as quickly as they need it. And we're going to end up with a lot of people in line who won't get served. So I think that's the other thing we're kind of looking at is how do we simplify things during this crisis so that we can be nimble and get people the help that they need quickly and accurately. John, this is a bit of an in the weeds question about oh, Medicaid that. eligibility, but I know that's that's. <laughs> That's your real strong, your strong oh, suit. Yeah, we love the weeds. <laughs> um, but if you, if if somebody was employed in the restaurant industry and making a, a middle class income through that, um, and today they're completely unemployed, with respect to eligibility requirements, is it looking back at their last year of employment and or looking ahead to their, their what they anticipate their next three or four or five months will be? It kind of lo it looks at today. Uh -huh. you know what I mean, so it looks at their situation today, um, and that's the income you're reporting. It 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 doesn't necessarily look back, and so um, so yeah, people people should definitely uh, go on and apply. I mean, the other piece I'll say too is for folks who are just above those limits that I talked about, you know, they can also get healthcare coverage through the exchange. Now there's some cost to that, but for folks who are at lower incomes, below 200% of poverty, there are um, uh, significant subsidies. Now, the one thing we do need to do for people that the federal government has not done yet is, uh, you know, typically you can only sign up on those healthcare exchanges once a year. Uh, and so what some states have done, but the federal government has not done, is make COVID a reason for a special enrollment, to allow you to enroll at other times of the year. And particularly since Ohio uses the federal exchange, we haven't been able to offer that yet to people in Ohio. And that's something we've got to get done. We've got to get the federal government to where they operate these healthcare exchanges to make COVID a special reason for why people can sign up for coverage. Um, John, I just want to shout out to your staff, who uh, some of whom are on the chat as, and, and on the call, who are looking up your federal poverty guidelines and adding <laughs> that, probably tweeting them out as well. I hope our team will uh, can grab those links and tweet them out. And yep. also we'll share them on our website. Yep. Um, if we, uh, here's a, a very, another very question, Another very weedy question for you. If we increase SNAP or expand Medicaid to 200%, is that paid for by the state or do you think that is a federal advocacy item? Uh, so on the SNAP benefit, that would be 100% paid for by the federal government. That's not a state expense. Now there are administrative costs that the state would have. And so, you know, we'd have to figure out how to uh, manage that. On the Medicaid piece, if we were able to do that, you know, particularly those who are part of the expansion population, those that the expansion that was made possible by the Affordable Care Act, you know, 90% of that cost would be picked up uh, by the federal government. Although there's a move underway, and maybe this will be part of Corona 4, uh, is to go back to where we were when we started with the Affordable Care Act and have the federal government pick up 100% of the cost of that expansion population. So it, it would depend on, you know, like I said, there's nothing about Medicaid simple, but some costs would be 100% picked up uh, by the federal government. Some costs would be, have to be shared between the state and the federal government at this point. You know, John, you, you've occupied the advocacy, the advocacy environment for a very long time. For most of your career, you've been in the world of advocacy. And you're always making the case, like if we make, if we, it's either kind of a pay now or pay later case, right? You're either going to support people who are in trouble right now, or you're going to wind up uh, having to pay for them when they're seeking entitlements or in the emergency room or whatever it is. That case is often very hard to make in the capitalist culture that defines American life. Um, but I wonder if this moment is shifting. It's a really different context. And suddenly those, that case is really obvious because, because more than 100,000 people applied for unemployment insurance in the state of Ohio last week. Right. So um, are you feeling that this is actually opening new doors or revealing new horizons for um, for advocacy around public policy? Well, yeah, Dan, that's a really interesting question. I don't know about advocacy necessarily, but I do. I mean, this experience is going to change us. 
Yeah. You know, it, it's going to change how we think about things and how we relate to things. You know, one of the things I've been doing recently is reading kind of about what changed after the, uh, the, the Spanish flu pandemic, which actually wasn't Spanish, um, uh, about that pandemic. And you know, one of the things I thought was really interesting, and it was sort of, it was both to the pandemic and to the flu and to World War I, which was going on at the time, was that was really where women came into the workforce in large numbers. Uh, because one, the men were off fighting, uh, and two, because of the pandemic, there was a need uh, for people to kind of step into new roles. And it was, you know, after that, the women's suffrage came, you know, after the war and after this. So I think there's going to be cultural changes that happen as a result of this. You know, maybe we'll finally, you know, join the civilized world and offer paid uh, sick leave to people. Um, you know, that would be a good thing, uh, because I think, you know, we've shown, I think we've seen how, because we don't have that, how we've undercut our response to this epidemic. You know, it, it, it's fine to tell people to stay at home, but if they have no other source of income and have to pay their rent and have to pay their car note or their pay for the gas bill or for food, it, it just doesn't mean anything. And we're putting people in an impossible situation. So maybe that's, you know, where we can change the conversation. I, you know, I, you know, I, this, we're just, you know, we're just getting started in this. You know, we are not at the end. We are at the beginning. And so I think the, I think it will change how we think about things. I think it will illustrate things that we need to do differently. Um, you know, I'm hoping, you know, a lot of the stuff that we've been asking the state and the federal government to do over the last week and a half is things that we've been asking them to do for a long time. To mm -hmm. remove of the bureaucracy, make it easier for people to get help when they need it. So hopefully we can leave those things in place once we're past, you know, this pandemic, because they, they make good sense and good policy, whether there's a pandemic or not, but they make particularly good sense now if we want to flatten the curve and boost the economy. John, here's a question from Twitter. Uh, with the announcement of a state hiring freeze and other belt tightening measures, uh, this was yesterday, I think yesterday or two days ago, that the governor announced a state hiring freeze, except for uh, health, health, frontline health workers and, so, and folks dealing with this particular crisis. Uh, what should we anticipate on state capital budget and, and the overall state government budget in the coming months? Does Corona 3 or Corona 4 include funding for states? Yeah, I mean, both, I mean, everything that's happened so far has included funding for states, whether it's enough or not. I mean, I mentioned before, you know, Ohio's going to get a billion dollars more in Medicaid funding, but there's, you know, there's money in this Corona 3, you know, for public transit, for housing, for local, for community development block grant money. There's, there's additional money sort of spread throughout a variety of programs and services. I don't think it's enough, you know, and I think the next budget is going to be very difficult, you know. You know, and I hope, you know, that we don't have to cut this budget, this state budget in the middle of it. Uh, you know, we're, we're a state that does a budget every two years. And so our budget, next state budget won't get sort of debated until next February will start. Uh, so we have a little bit more time to plan, but we may, they may need, may need to make reductions sooner. You know, one of the things we'll want to pay attention to, obviously, is what happens with state tax receipts. You know, right. Up until this moment, we were running ahead of projections. You know, we were, and we were underspending. So, I mean, that's good. At least we went into this, you know, without already falling short on state tax revenue and already being over on expenditures. So we all pay our income tax, our state, we all pay our state income tax for 2019 right now, more or less, or we've been paying it a lot yeah, to file our taxes for 2019. Yeah. It's a different scenario for businesses, correct? Yeah, Those some pay you know, quarterly or pay in a different way. And sales tax is a big part of this too. Remember the auto sales tax, you know, the, the personal sales tax. I mean, we have a lot of different, I mean, so one thing about, um, about taxes and about, and about revenue, there are some sources of revenue that are fairly constant and there are some that we refer to as being more elastic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, income tax is an elastic tax. It, it grows, shrinks and, and, uh, and grows, you know, pretty quickly uh, based on what's happening. There are other taxes that are, aren't like that. You know, a property tax tends to be more stable uh, over time, you know, but we could start to see, you know, if this would go on too long, you know, we could back, be back where we were before, uh, where housing values start to drop because there aren't buyers uh, and, and we see some reduction in property taxes as well, revenue. But that, I mean, we're a ways off from that yet, so.
Um, let me just also remind fo remind you if you're watching on the YouTube stream and you would like to to text a question, here's the number 330-541-5794. Got it? Okay. You can also we're have to invest in a sign. I know, I know. If, if we keep doing number. it, hopefully we won't have to, but um, <laughs> maybe I should just print. I, I do have a printer at home. I could have done that. Um, uh, if we, uh, and you can also tweet your questions, of course, at the City Club. We'll work it in. Uh, and um, John, you had said about regarding tax receipts and, um, and, and all of that, the specifically though, Oh, I just lost the question because I went to that. I'm completely blanked. All right, I'm going to go straight to Twitter question here. Um, there are two, a couple of questions here in the chat about um, about sort of automating things to make it easier and, and more seamless for people who are seeking entitlement benefits. Um, is it possible to co-enroll individuals in unemployment insurance, Medicaid, and SNAP at the same time just to simplify Things. This is obviously somebody who's very progressive thinking ahead and innovative. I don't know if government works that way or not. Um, and also, is it possible to get agencies to share info, like employer taxes to Medicaid, so it's an automatic confirmation if a person applies for benefits? Yeah, I, I, mean, I wish the answer to that was yes. That, that's a great idea. Um, but I'm not sure that it'll be that simple. I think, you know, I mean, the, I think the best we can hope for in terms of Medicaid and SNAP uh, and some of these other services is that we, um, the best way to make it easier for people is to make it simpler. Uh, and as I said earlier, you know, one of the things we could do that we should do around SNAP or around uh, Medicaid, around you know, food stamps or Medicaid or these other, is if a person fills out an application and says, this is my income, these are my expenses, we accept that. And we don't require additional documentation. We can always come back later if we want to and, and look at these things and audit them and things like that. And, and we probably should do that at some point. But this ain't the time for that. This is the time to make it easy for people to, because, because we want people to get these benefits because we won't get the economic benefit from them if people can't get them. And people, and we want people to have the healthcare coverage. You know, we don't want people to be bankrupted, you know, by this epidemic. And I should say there are, there are a number of new, really important protections in, in, in this latest coronavirus bill around, you know, uh, protecting people from these bills that they might incur, you know, covering the cost of testing, covering the cost of treatment, covering the cost of vaccines. So that's really important too. And that's a key part of this new bill. Um, John, you said before about Corona 3, you listed a whole bunch of things that are in it, community uh, development block grants and things of that sort. And, um, a lot of people will have seen the debating back and forth, uh, Republican senators holding up lists of things that Nancy Pelosi was allegedly trying to put into the stimulus package that had nothing to do with the economy, nothing to do with coronavirus. And I wonder if you can help people, help sort of make the case for why that kind of spending that wouldn't immediately occur to people as related to this moment is in fact related to this moment or is in fact related to shoring up the economy so that on the other side of this, we have an economy that is going to work well for more people? Well, I think, you know, I think, um, you know, I think Congress and, and the federal government have to use the vehicles they have. And so, you know, you might, somebody might say, well, putting more money in the community development block grant is not the way to respond to the coronavirus, but getting money to cities that are seeing their incomes their income drop, their income tax revenue drop, and seeing you know, challenges in their neighborhoods, well, okay, that's a good vehicle to use to get money to cities and to get money to neighborhoods. Maybe it's not the most perfect thing. Same thing with transit. I mean, there's you know, $25 billion in this bill for transit. Not enough, should be more, but I mean, you, know, you have to use the vehicles you have uh, to get, because this is not the time to be setting up new programs and because you know, uh, we'll never get the money out. I always, you know, I remember during the last, recession, there were all these, quote, shovel-ready projects that states had and that we could get started right away. Well, some of those shovels hadn't been, you know, hadn't even been uh, uh, lifted uh, before the uh, recession expired. So, I, you know, the best ways to get money out to people is to give money to people, you know, and they will spend it. You know, we're not talking about, you know, this is not folks are putting it in their trust accounts, you know, or they're locking it up in bonds or stocks or whatever. These are people who have to pay their rent pay their mortgage, pay for their car, you know, and let's get that money into the economy because it'll help small businesses too and keep mm -hmm. people employed and get people back sooner into this economy. 
Here's another question uh, specifically about hospitals and healthcare. Uh, do you have any information about how hospitals will be reimbursed for the costs and losses incurred in this moment? The moratorium on elective cases cut 30 to 50% of hospitals' budgets on the revenue side. And even if the hospitals are filled with coronavirus patients, and of course we hope that they're not, the reimbursement will not likely cover the costs. How do you think that's gonna work? Well, I mean, so the bill does have $130 billion more for hospitals. Uh, and there are some other provisions in this that will be very helpful to hospitals. Um, you know, like particularly around, um, one of the things I noticed this morning um, is allowing, you know, for uh, when they do testing uh, for the coronavirus, they're allowed to charge their costs to payers and payers have to pay it. That is a very unusual arrangement. Uh, in healthcare today, um, and so I, there are probably other things like that in here. You know, we gotta, we'll have to look at it. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I hope in Corona 4, the next chapter, uh, that uh, we uh, boost that Medicaid match rate up even higher for states. Because, you know, if you look at Medicaid, there are three, you know, things that are drivers of Medicaid spending, hospitals, pharmacy, and skilled nursing facilities. And all of those um, are things that will get a boost in payment. You know, the state will see more payment based on what they spend in those areas. Plus, I mean, I have to believe, you know, uh, that we will add by the end of this year, um, you know, two, maybe as many as 400,000 more people to the state Medicaid program. I mean, that is tremendous, uh, a tremendous increase. Uh, and so, you know, that again, anything we can do to reduce the, we don't want to see our uninsured rate shoot back up, you know, and, you know, one of the things that happened, I think it was this week, although all these days run together, I mean, we celebrated the 10th anniversary of the Affordable Care Act. I can't imagine where we would be right now if we hadn't passed that legislation because, you know, it keeps that Medicaid coverage in place for hundreds of thousands of people in this country and in Ohio. And, and lets those healthcare exchanges operate, no pre-existing condition, you know, things that can keep people out of coverage. So I, I think, you know, I think there's stuff in this bill for hospitals, you know, there may be, need to be more. This is, you know, I, I tell people, this is not a race that we're running, this is a marathon. And so we're just gonna have to keep our, you know, ears open and, and keep our, you know, our ears open and be looking to see what else is out there. And I encourage people to share that you know, where you see issues, where you see problems, where you see people, things not getting addressed. And we need to raise that up to policymakers so they address it. Um, uh, coming back to, John, coming back to the state uh, budget, um, one of our listeners or viewers here has asked, I've been told the state capital budget is dead and that state agencies are being asked to cut their operating budgets by 20%. What do you know? Well, I mean, the governor said that and he didn't mention the capital bill. You know, I, you know, the capital bill and the operating bill sort of draw from different, you know, pots. And so I'm, I don't know that I would say yet that it's dead. I, I think it's certainly delayed. I don't think they have time to manage it with all the other stuff that they've got on their plate to do in, in a more urgent way. So if it does happen, I would imagine, I wouldn't see it happening until fall maybe uh, uh, before uh, they act on it. But I, I haven't talked to specifically about that. So I would be hesitant to write it off as dead. Um, I, you know, the governor did, you know, put a call out to, to, for people to sort of look to reduce their budgets. You know, that's going to be something that we're going to pay a lot of attention to, you mm -hmm. know, because we want to make sure that those cuts, you know, don't make things worse. Um, and we'll want to know, careful, you know, that we don't, um, we don't want to go too far. Um, I mean, the, the challenge for states is they have to pass a balanced budget. You know, they can't spend more than they take in. Mm -hmm. They don't print money like the federal government does. Uh, and so they've got greater challenges like that. But I mean, it may also require us to relook at some of the tax policies that we put in place in, in previous budgets that have provided you know, a lot of significant uh, tax relief uh, and tax cuts to, to those who are pretty well off. Here's another question uh, from, uh, that was texted in. One of the alarming trends of the 1918 so-called Spanish flu was that the second viral wave was worse than the first. Are you yeah. concerned there could be a worse second wave here, especially if we restart the economy prematurely? And what could we collectively do as a society to better prepare if the pandemic does return? Yeah, I mean, I mean that is a possibility. I, I, there's a lot we don't know yet about this virus, and, and we're going to learn it, you know, as we go along here. I, I, you know, I've been sort of thinking that, you know, let's say uh, things go back to normal, whatever that is. 
uh, you know, by summer or whatever. But, you know, I don't know about you, but I still think if we, things go back to normal in summer, I don't want to be in a room with 500 people, you know, it's going to take me a while to sort of feel comfortable, you know, being with a lot of people. That's literally my business model. <laughs> well, three, two fifty. Uh, but I think, I think, I, you know, we'll have to see. I think we'll have to see. And I think, I think, you know, I, I, I think, you know, in, in this instance, I think protecting the public's health is how we protect the economy. Because if this, if we don't do that, if we go back prematurely, if we don't listen to the best advice, you know, of our healthcare professionals and our, and our scientists, you know, then I think we risk more damage and make that second wave so much worse. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think, you know, I think it's important to, to be as patient as we can, realizing I know what a hardship this creates for people. Um, and, uh, and so, but I think it's better to be as safe as we can on this. And I think we're going to learn more as this goes along, you know, I mean, uh, there's been some really interesting things written about, lately about, you know, when should people who've been exposed go back to work, you know, and mm -hmm. do they have to wait as long as 14 days or, or this, that, or the other. But mm -hmm. I, you know, we, there's a lot of information we still don't have about this. There's a lot we still don't know. Mm -hmm. And so I think we've just got to be, we're just going to have to be patient about that. John, here's a, are there uh, specific protections for undocumented immigrants? They're critical to the economy and very vulnerable. Yeah, I, I, I have to say, I don't know that. I haven't, when, what I looked at this morning in terms mm -hmm. of the summary of the bill, I don't know that I saw anything about those groups. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not in there, but that's one of the, that's a question where I'd have to wait until I've got it, we've had a chance to read the legislation itself. Mm -hmm. uh, another question regarding the legislation, both at the state level and, and the federal level, are there, is there funding specifically for any nonprofits? The need for a lot of these services will increase, but what are the chances of a corresponding increase in funding for homeless shelters, domestic violence shelters, legal aid, and so forth? I mean, there's definitely funding in this bill. I think, you know, there are um, some of the credits that are offered to small businesses are also offered to small nonprofits. You know, so, you know, maybe a, um, a refund of some of your payroll taxes that you paid and be able to get a, you know, that back into your organization. A lot mm -hmm. of the funding that is in this bill will ultimately flow through nonprofits because they're a major part of our delivery system for health and human services. So they should see some additional funding, uh, you know, come as a, as a result of that. But I think that's a really uh, important question. I think, you know, one of the things we have to think about is, is, we may need uh, the ability to provide, actually to provide grants to some nonprofits, not loans or things like that. Right. Because a lot of them don't get paid unless they deliver service. So if they can't deliver service because it's not safe and people have told them not to do that, we've got to figure out a way to support them so that they can continue their business and bring people back you know, as this uh, epidemic uh, begins to end or, or wanes. Because it would be really tragic if at the end of this, you know, we um, end up, you know, with a lot of these organizations having gone out of business. I mean, that's not a good thing. I mean, we already know, like, for example, in behavioral health and mental health services and, and addiction services, that we don't have enough providers. We don't have enough service. So, well, I mean, in the, in those, we wouldn't want to be in a situation, you know, a year from now where, okay, we're, we're back to normal, but right. we don't have, we have even less organizations, less people to serve these folks. And those behavioral health uh, providers typically only get paid if they're spending time with the, the client. In right. Will be really helpful, you know, to those providers and others in healthcare is they really opened up the option of telemedicine. You know, mm -hmm. that had not necessarily been a um, a place where the state had really sort of wanted to do much, but they sort of they uh, opened the door pretty wide and covered a lot of different kinds of providers. Um, and also said, I think one of the important things that is part of that is that it provides parity and payment. And what that means is a provider now gets paid the same as if he provides that service in person or she provides it you know, over the phone or through a computer, you know, a video chat or something like that. So I think they've tried to be sort of proactive in that respect. And I think that can help. Um, but those systems take a while to get set up. You know, mm -hmm. and even if organizations can take advantage of it, it's going to take them a while to learn how to do it how to bill for it, all that stuff. It's all complicated. And I should say too that last week on Friday, when we were talking about the economic impact 
of this pandemic. We were also speaking with Dale Anglin of the Cleveland Foundation, mm. who is one of the one of the folks who is charged with being the administrator for the Greater Cleveland COVID nineteen Rapid Response Fund, which now right. is a little over five million dollars, and I believe they have started receiving and processing requests and are trying to get checks out the door this week. Um, so that's available. There's information online at the Cleveland Foundation's website regarding that. And mm -hmm. I also see our friend Michal Marcus of the uh, Hebrew Free Loan Association uh, mm -hmm. on the call as well. And that is another organization that, that offers zero interest loans to, mm -hmm. um, to individuals. And uh, if you're wondering if you qualify, you should just reach out directly to them. Uh, just, just, just Google uh, Hebrew Free Loan Asso Association, HFLA. Northeast Ohio, and you'll find them for sure. Um, so, uh, John, we're almost out of time here for this hour. Um, what are you going to be looking for, both at the state level and and also, actually, I should say, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about local responses. So, this Friday, uh, we'll be talking with County Executive Armin Budish, and the county is a place that sort of funnels a lot of the federal money out to agencies um, and he'll be talking about the local response and maybe actually that's the we've talked a lot about the federal and the state level so let's finish with the very local what yeah. should we be listening for on friday when we speak with county executive armin budish well one of the first things i hope we can do soon is wrap up this recent election and uh, pass issue 33 the health and human services issue because this is not the time to be weakening our system of health and human services in this country that's number one I think you know, the other important role that the county plays is they are the agency, they are the organization that determines eligibility for a lot of these important programs for SNAP and Medicaid and things like that. Mm -hmm. So anything that we can do to support them and get them the resources they need so that they're able to process quickly and accurately these claims and get people help the people right away, I think is really important. Um, and I think you know, there's, I mean, there's just a leadership role. I mean, our, you know, um, one of the things, so here's my wish. Uh, for the next, one of my wishes for the next state budget. You know, uh, in the last state budget, um, Ohio ranked 47th in the country among 50 states for funding for public health. I want Ohio to be number one in the next state budget. I want us to be the top state for funding for public health because these folks are just doing extraordinary work with not enough resources. And, you know, so I think that's one of the things I'd love to see local government and state government uh, step up and say, we're gonna make public health a priority. We are gonna be number one in the country and we're gonna protect our citizens. Um, and I wanna to mention too, that I wanna thank Michal Marcus for putting the, uh, the, uh, the URL for the Hebrew Free Loan Association, oh, interestfree.org. For those of you who are watching on YouTube, interestfree.org, that URL kind of says it all. We thank them for their work. John Corlett, if this were the City Club of Cleveland, you'd be receiving, I, I have no doubt, a standing ovation right now. <laughs> Still the City Club of Cleveland, so I'll, I'll stand up for Where's a second. Gone? <laughs> uh, John, I really want to thank you for your time, sure. um, your expertise, your research, your skill at communicating uh, just a wide range of policy issues. This is um, These are unprecedented times, and we're really grateful to have experts like you and your colleagues where you are doing the work that you're doing and making yourself available today. So thank you very much. Thank you, Dan, and, and to everybody, be safe out there. Take care of yourselves, your family and your colleagues and uh, be kind. Yes, absolutely. As we close up, uh, and there's a bunch of claps and thank yous coming in on the, uh, on the chat right now. As we, um, as we wrap this up, I wanna thank all of you for participating today. I wanna thank again uh, those who sponsored our, who are sponsoring us while we do these virtual forums, Everstream, Sisters of Charity Foundation, the Western Reserve Area Agency, on aging and board members of the City Club, including Mark Ross, Robin Mentor Smyers, and Paul Harris, and many, many others who have stepped up. As I said before, uh, your City Club is losing a lot of revenue by not, by not hosting live events. And we don't know how long this is gonna last. We will be there on the other side with your support. If you can join us with that support, please join us at cityclub.org. Uh, John Corlett, thank you so much. Everybody, on the, everybody who, who participated, thank you so much. And here we are, this forum is now adjourned. Thanks everybody, we'll see you soon, stay well. <laughs>